1: informed, motivated, and recharged on radio's favorite power hour, Star Style, Be the Star You Are, with your hosts, Cynthia Bryan and Heather Brittany. Every day is a stellar day on Star Style, Be the Star You Are. Let's get this party started. Cynthia will be back to kick it all off after this break.
2: Listen. Listen.
1: Listen. Everyone counts. That web address again is www.bethestarur.org. BeTheStarYouAre.org. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. That's one 613 1612 or send an email to info at org. Now back to Star Style, Be the Star You Are, with the Oprah of the Airwaves, Cynthia Bryan. Be the star, you are. Well,
2: howdy, howdy, power partners. Welcome to radio's finest hour of power, Star Style, Be the Star You Are, a program of positive book talk with authors and experts that help you excel and expand your life. My name is Cynthia Bryan. And I'm Heather Brittany. And we are the co-hosts of this show. We're always thrilled to be your personal growth success coaches right here on the airwaves with you every week. So get ready to pump your energy, love, learn, laugh, listen, and live your dreams through books and positive media. We have three rules for the show. Heather, give them out to our audience.
3: Most definitely. We want you to smile, have fun, and be willing to take that chance to be wild and
2: crazy. And, of course, we want you to read books.
3: Usually these are books you might not
2: have heard of, and we want to bring them to you so that you can read, lead, and succeed, and also announce to you the books that benefit the charity Be The Star You Are. I am the author of five books, Chicken Soup for the Gardener's Soul, Be The Star You Are, the new book, Be The Star You Are, for teens, miracle moments, and the business of show business. And you can pick up autographed copies at dot com. So buy a book today. The Miracle Moment is brought to you by Operation Haiti Relief. It's shipping books and games and puzzles to victims of the earthquake. To make a donation for shipping costs, visit org. Click on Donate. It's from Anne Frank. Whoever is happy will make others happy, too. Happiness is an inside job, as Heather and I always say. Well, here today, April Fool's Day. Happy April Fool's. We're going to be talking about April Fool's, the background, how it started. Also, we will be talking about the book Judicial Deception. If you've ever been in a courtroom, you need to know how the system works. And whether you've acted properly, it doesn't mean that you're going to win. So this will be an interesting segment with author Reginald Jensen in our second segment uh... talking about how the justice system is fair and unfair and in our third hour this is not the story you think it is with laura munson's debut book it's a poignant wise funny memoir about a personal philosophy that enabled her to weather the storm of her husband's departure and a relationship breakup and how she brought it back so if you was going through career changes or relationship changes, this book is going to be very
3: interesting for you. Well, how April Fool's Day, Heather? Did you do any April Fool's pranks? Actually, we did. I've never been a big person with April Fools, just because I hate. I'm I'm more scared that jokes sometimes will be funny mean, not funny ha-ha. You yeah, know, that's say, like oh, me. My God, not, I'm not accident. much of a
2: prankster either.
3: Yeah, but um someone that works in my clinic who kind of is always the, the jokester, we tried, we're figuring out for the last couple of days, how are we going to get him? And uh, we figured something out today. There's a bar he goes to nightly. He just always talks about this one bar. He has friends at bartending at this place. He, you know, he could just be the billboard for it. Loves it so much. So we came up with the idea that when he comes in, we'd mention that, oh, yeah, I saw your part on the news this morning. I heard they're getting shut down for underage drinking, and there was a big sting. And when he came in, and we told and we told him, he started freaking out. Oh, Josh has not gone the phone. Oh, my God, my buddy was bartending last night. Starts calling him, and we just broke into hysterics. And he looks at us with this blank face, and it's just like, "Oh, I'm like, hey, ah! bro." So <laughs> it was a great success, but uh, and it was but funny, done. haha. So it was, it was great. <laughs> that's funny. That that's funny. Well, you know, it does. If you don't
2: make it a mean joke, it is, it is kind of humorous to play something. I, I didn't do anything today, but I know that when we were growing up, we always had. Silly things where we'd catch somebody off guard and, you know, say something like their dress was ripped or my, or, or you realize that we missed the class, it was actually yesterday, you know, things that were, that kind of thing. Uh uh-huh. Well, so let's talk about April Fool's Day or All Fool's Day, which is a day that well, many, many countries celebrate on April 1st. And it is really marked by practical jokes and different kinds of hoaxes that you play on friends and family. Uh, neighbors, maybe you know, as you did, people at work. But it seems that different countries are different. And from what I read, is that the earliest recorded association between April first and being crazy and funny and foolish was in uh, Chaucer's it was Tales Canterbury that was written Tales. In yeah, yeah, uh, ninety-two. Exactly.
3: It's that was funny. It's kind of a, April Fool's or April 1st is kind of the one day of the year when pranks aren't just tolerated but encouraged, and it seems kind of like you've missed out on something if you haven't done something like that. Yeah, when I was doing the research from this, because it was that thing of why do we celebrate this day? And it's not really even a day of laughter, and laughter is a great medicine, I would like to say, because we're trying to encourage more of our issues to be about health. And that is in, incorporating health there. Laughter is a fantastic medicine. Um but, but this doesn't, isn't it just about jokes, it's about pranks, you know, physicality, all this great stuff. Um, but there was really hard to, to pick. There's so many different stories of where it originated from. Um, on certain sites and certain information I found, they first made a mention of it in the Catterbury Tales. Um, in the nun's priest tale, um, they described it. But trying to find, you know, something that it you know, why it was so widely, you know, this information about it. I actually found out that um, they tried to, in 1564, King, King Charles, oh gosh, I think is it 6, 1X, I'm not sure if that's 6 or 4, um, of France, he passed a law, he tried to change uh, the calendar year so that New Year's, instead of being January 1st, was April 1st. Um, but as but the news of this was so slowly passed on um, that when people were trying to celebrate it and, and talk about how oh this is the beginning of the year they began to get mocked by people and people called them foolish and saying they were a fool for believing um, that you know that the beginning of the year would come in uh, April instead of January and so as a result of this they began to pull pranks on these people that were so you know so solemn that this is the beginning of the year. And so they said that. Thus, because of that, um, that's how the Fool's Days came. Because they considered that's interesting. It I had home. you know, I hadn't heard. I hadn't heard that. That yeah, is very and, interesting. And because it wins in French, I believe it is poisson. Is it poisson? Yeah, yeah, poisson. Is, uh, poisson means poisson. fish. But so that would be. I, will, poisson, I uh, will. I will. I will. <laughs> yeah, that was the from the
2: fifteenth uh, or f- early sixteenth century, fifteen oh eight, when the poet. Uh, mm-hmm. he would refer, refer to it as Poisson Avril. That's how it was, April Fool's
3: came to France. Exactly. And, um and you know something that was interesting, you know, I was reading up on, you know, what are classic pranks that people have done, a real good thing, and the kind of the hard thing about this day is that real news actually has happened on this day, or does, and people a lot of times when things are kind of major or critical, uh we'll write it off one thing for example in 1979 i ran in iran um, this is the national republic day and it's been continued to be this for the past you know 30 some so on years so this is their national day today um, also one thing in 2004 uh google tradition, google was launched on april 1st and so um, they announced um, the following, that they were changing their name or they were adding on this new email service. And everyone thought, um, you know, it was just a big, it was just big it was a big prank, but it was for real. Yeah, and unfortunately, there's been um, some deaths. There was a famous uh comedian, oddly enough, named Mitch Hedberg, who I just adored. He's so funny, such a dry humor. Uh, and he had actually passed away um I am in two thousand five, but he passed away on March uh thirty thirty first. The information didn't get put out into the news until uh April first. And one him being a comedian and two it being um April School Day, people really didn't believe that this was real and they were making jokes about it and, and then kind of saying it was in poor humor on him. Um only, you know, to find out later that in fact he had passed away. Uh, and it was just that it wasn't into the publications until the first. So it's kind of one of those tricky things of um, being, you know, that thing of you of kind of crying wolf on a day like this of times that someone really could be in need or could be in danger, and people kind of hit that thin line of are you pranking me or like are you really choking? So <laughs> yeah, you know, and I just wonder. I mean, I just remember as a child looking
2: forward to April Fool's and the little silly things that we could do with one another. But I wonder if in today's day that people do as many things. I mean, obviously, you did pull off a good, fun little prank with one of your colleagues. What but the...
3: did, do you find, like, what, talking around in your clinic you know, that I, I guess people are really doing it? I will see for me personally, I've never been. I think when I was a kid, maybe, but I've never really been a big April Fool's because then you feel gullible and... All this stuff. But uh, I've never, even with my friends, people were like, oh, yeah, I guess it's staple full state. The person who actually conspired this and all day long is our lead clinician, Natalia, oh. who is almost 60. She was on this mission of, we have got to get this kid. And she tried even to get me today, trying to say someone was choking in the back of the sandwich. Sadly, though, where they were sitting, I could see them on the security screens, and, I'm, and she's calling me from her cell phone. And I'm like, I'm looking right at you on the security screen right now. It's like, oh, goodness. Oh, goodness. <laughs> and so, so,
2: that, it's funny, so you, you know, know it absolutely didn't work. Spirit. You know what I also thought was interesting in reading about April Fool's is how different countries – I actually celebrate it in different ways and in mm-hmm. some countries you can only pull pranks before noon. So
3: noon. I saw that. And then
2: in other countries you can only pull pranks after noon or if you pull them after noon uh time, that's when you're called the fool. And uh, you huh. know that I so I thought that's kind of an interesting idea that you can have it at different times of
3: the day. <laughs> But it does it is in many, many different countries. Yeah, so that and is- and, in, and the interesting in Scotland it's a forty eight hour festival and the second day is called Tailey, Taylor Day and it's dedicated to pranks involving the buttocks. <laughs> <So> <laughs> the third day is gifts to posterior, um, hilarious, you know, the people wearing signs that say kick me. Um, you know, things like that. And the foolish tradition is celebrated in Mexico and on a different day for different reasons. Um, and they have one uh, in December 28th that set a day for uh, Christians uh, to, you know do silly things too. And that was something actually, I kind of got to thinking is that we're almost to Easter now. And just thinking, there's kind of sense I don't. And who's to say? I mean, because there are so many different options of what the true meaning or where this came from. I had to kind of wonder if it has to do with this whole month leading to Easter, because the day before, um, you know, we have Fat Tuesday, where it's the day of gluttony and craziness, and then was it Ash Wednesday, and then to let like then the next day you give up something. And um and then I kind of felt like the week before Easter and you know maybe well, because it will serious be for so Well, so today is it's Holy Thursday so
2: tomorrow is Good Friday then there is uh, Holy Saturday, and then it's Easter. So yeah, it so all works Yeah, exactly I
3: thought maybe, you know, because this last month people were supposed to be giving up Lent, you know, giving up something, that um, on your way getting back, you know, to Easter, to that thought to the Good Friday, maybe there just needs to be a day of just good humor and laughter. Good humor. Well,
2: that's what April Fool's is about, is good humor. And to that, I just wanted to add two funny ones that I knew of. In um, in 1965, the BBC television network, which is in England, mm-hmm. they had uh, they purported to conduct a trial of new technology, and it was called Smell-O-Vision. And so I read they, that. they told yes. they told on the news, they told their audience that over the next hours there were going to be odors that they were going to stay on the airwaves, and they wanted viewers to contact them. To let them know if it was successful. Well, interestingly enough, uh, thousands of people called them and said, yes, they smelled these different smells, which of course it was a total hoax. There is no such thing as smell-o-vision. Uh-huh. And then another one that's sort of dear to my heart because I lived in Holland, the Netherlands, the Dutch television did something similar in the 1950s and they shocked people by announcing that the Tower of, Pi- of Pies had fallen over, you know, like the uh, Tower of Tarts. Of oh course, geez. there is no Tower of Tarts, but people all around the world contacted them, so upset, wanting to know where the Tower of, Power- uh, the Tower of Pies was and-, and why it fell over. <laughs> uh. So anyway, with that, to everyone out there, happy April Fool's Day. Have a good time. Play a fun hoax, but not a mean one. Heather, give out the website if you would.
3: Most definitely. Uh, please check out BeTheStarUR.com, BeTheStarUR.org, MySpace.com, forward slash, Carmine Clutches, both with a K. And when
2: we come back, we're going to go into the courtroom, and you're going to meet author Reginald Jensen with his book, Judicial Deception, You will never go to court the same. Stay with us. I'm Cynthia Bryan.
3: And I'm Heather Brittany.
2: And this is Star Style. Be the star you are. We'll be right back.
1: Listen. 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 Everyone counts. That web address again is www.BeTheStarYouAre.org. BeTheStarYouAre.org. Cynthia Bryan is your guide on the side. www.cynthiabryan.com. You can be the star you are. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. That's 1-866-613-1612, or send an email to info at org. Now back to Star Style, Be the Star You Are, with the Oprah of the Airwaves, Cynthia Bryan. Be the star, you
2: are. Well, thanks for listening to Star Style, Be the Star You Are, where the world comes to talk and listen. I am Cynthia Bryan. I am very happy to have you here with me, where we bring you the authors, the experts, and the professionals Reginald Jensen is a registered investment advisor. He's been working in the life insurance business for almost a lifetime with small new companies as well as large companies. He has a Bachelor of Science in Economics, and his book is Judicial Deception. Welcome, Reginald, to Star Style. Be the star you are.
4: Well, thank you, Cynthia. I appreciate it.
2: Well, with a name like that, you sound like you should be a judge and jury. I love your name.
4: <laughs> I appreciate it.
2: Well, throughout your you know, probably more than 55 years of working in the insurance business and with the legal system, you have discovered something that I found just really most upsetting, and yet it, it is so real. Is that there is a much of trading favors by attorneys, judges, and other authorities that is really contributing to the breakdown of the American legal system. Now your book, Judicial Deception, you document numerous briberies, lies, judgments, slanders, kind of, a lot of underhanded practices that have not been within the law of the land. Can you just tell us about the beginnings of your experience and how this has, you know, accumulated over the years so that it became necessary to write this book to help everybody else see what's out there.
4: Sure. I'll I'll give you, uh, take you from the beginning and close to the end. Well, I started up in Oregon back in the early 1960s, and I started a life insurance company. We ran it for five years, and then a pimp tried to take over the insurance company. Uh, and uh, that involves three years of litigation and three proxy contests. And, and when
2: you say fu- that, I mean, there was actually somebody who was, uh, who was highly placed that had a prostitution ring.
4: That's exactly right. You're right. He was, he, and in fact, he was the chairman of the board of the company.
2: Yeah, exactly.
4: And, and he was an attorney.
2: Yes, so. and he was lending out cars to prostitutes of, of people that were supposed to have his trust.
4: That's exactly right. That's exactly right. But when we found out what happened, you know, we finally did resign, but he continued on with this proxy contest. Caused a lot of problems. We finally merged the company out into a company in California. And then I went back to Indiana, and uh, I was contracted back there to run an insurance agency for a small company and did quite a good job with them and the president of the company called me in after i'd been there for less than a year and he said you're going to make a lot more money than i am so you're fired get out i'm not going to pay you and then on top of that he he uh, slandered me into the uh, you know in the insurance business to try to prevent me from working so i couldn't sue him
2: i want to talk to about that slander because that was just all-encompassing and it's something we don't have control over. When someone smears our good name, we have to fight it.
4: That's exactly right. Well, you have to fight it. To if you if if it cost you a lot
2: of money and a lot of heartache. But it really showed you the inner workings of the judicial system, and it was not pretty.
4: No, it wasn't. And uh, so that uh, they they do that to affect your business. If it, you know, if they're just talking about you, if you're a movie star, then that's one thing you can handle. But if it's something that they're doing that destroys your ability to act in a professional manner, that's something else. But that went on, and and for just those lawsuits there, there were a couple of them. That went on for 10 years, and then there were a couple of other suits that were tacked onto that that went on for another five years, so that took me into 15 years.
2: Well, in this time, you became very, very knowledgeable about the law and the law books.
4: Yes, yes. I went over the law libraries for four to six hours a day for three years to study the law to see what was going on, you know, how they could do what they're doing and why they're doing it. So I became familiar with, with how they practice. And they, they, what they do is they do trade favors. Uh, one of my attorneys uh, said that he would he would uh, lose my lawsuit for me if my uh, my the person I was suing would help him become a judge. Uh, fortunately, he didn't become a judge, but he did lose the lawsuit, so I had to start over again.
2: Well, you know, this, this really bothered me. I'm reading your book. We're talking to author Reginald Jensen. His book is Judicial Deception, and this is a book that is filled with all different kinds of documents, and uh exhibits that were actual citations that actually happened. So you can read the motions, et cetera, of what he went through. But there was an instance that you got in an elevator, and you, there were like bribes going on, that if you do this, or you make me president of the company, or you buy this computer for $600,000, I will give you X amount. I mean, it seemed so under the belt and so off the radar
4: well that's true but it happens quite frequently and that is what happened you know it was that was up in oregon and 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 uh, there were hearings going on for the insurance business and uh, in order to, to terminate the hearings one of the state senators got on the elevator with me and he said if you give me ten thousand dollars i'll put an end to the hearings uh, well i didn't have the ten thousand to give him. i wouldn't have given it to him anyway you know, but but that was true. And then one of the other directors wanted to sell us a computer that would have cost us six hundred thousand dollars. We could have bought it for three hundred.
2: Right, and they were going to rent it. They were going to rent. rent it to you. <laughs> so it would be so expensive. It was it was crazy.
4: It was crazy. It was crazy.
2: How did it? Why? How, do you know what their mind workings? I mean, is it all about greed? And oh, power, absolutely. power and greed, greed and power.
4: Absolutely. There's no question about it. You know, if you're going to run a company, any kind of a company, for the benefit of the public and for the benefit of your, of your uh, stockholders and for the benefit of your, of your clients, you know, your buyers, your customers, you have to treat them as though well they're the most important. You have to do what is right for them. You have to keep your company solvent, but you have to do what's right for them first. And if you don't do that, your company is eventually going to fail. And you find that today in a lot of things that are happening, uh, that companies are failing, and one of the reasons they fail is because the people running the companies or those in charge of the companies want to take money or property out that shouldn't be delivered to them. They want to do it on the sly. That's the wrong way to go.
2: Well, you briefly touch on things in your book like Enron and AIG, What went on with AIG? This was very, very, and I mean, it's still going on.
4: Yes, (laughs) still going on. This,
2: is a this to me, just seems like such a scam. Um, Nobody seems to be able to account for where the dollars are. All these boards of directors getting millions of dollars compensation. What has happened here? How has our system broken down? And before you answer it, I just want to give the name of your book again. Judicial Deception, and our author, who is... Talking to us is Reginald Jansen. So how how did the system break down here? It seemed like AIG was a reputable company.
4: Well, uh, it it might have started out that way, but in the early nine in the early 2000s, they had developed a method of of uh, compensating some of their agents, many of their agents, extra sums of money if they would develop a method of freezing out other competitors. So then when they froze the other competitors out, they were able to charge higher premiums to the people who were buying insurance, and then based on the higher premiums, the agents and brokers were receiving higher commissions.
2: How would they freeze them out? What was the strategy there? Oh,
4: well, it, it was really quite simple when you think about it. If a broker submitted a bid to one insurance company for casualty insurance, after he submitted that bid no other broker could submit a bid to that casualty company. Only that first broker could do it. So if the broker submitted bids for 10 or 12 companies, and he knew they were good companies, he, he was the one that was going to get the bids, and after he had the bids, he would submit the bid that he wanted to submit to the buyer, to the customer. So if he had a bid that was going to cost the customer $200,000 a year in premiums or another bid that was going to cost 150000 he knew that nobody else could submit the 150000 so he would submit the $200,000 to his, to his customer and collect the extra money that way. So they were freezing out competitive bids in that manner.
2: And, you know, I think what's so unbelievable is we, as the general public, were believing in them, and we believed in our government to monitor this.
4: Oh, sure. Sure, but and they don't monitor it.
2: Well, you made something interesting that I wasn't even aware of during this whole AIG um, Spitzer, who was, um he took on what, uh, he took on AIG, right? And he, inv- he eventually uncovered the scam.
4: That's and his right.
2: reward was he got elected as the governor of New York. That's right. So no. was was he getting elected because of money given to him for that or because now he was a hero because he Unveiled it. What was behind that?
4: Well, he got elected because he was a hero. He had unveiled it. He received an awful lot of publicity, both in the national and in the New York press, and everyone knew who he was, and they were convinced that he was, in fact, uh, saving money and and trying to straighten out a company that that had gone wrong. Yeah, but
2: then it turns out that the very prostitution rings that he was prosecuting at the time. He was also frequenting
4: that's exactly right, and, and that happens frequently.
2: Well, you know, you started at the beginning of your book and talking about um, the the board of, the director of the board who had this prostitution ring, and he w- he felt he was so above prosecution because he said every judge, every senator, every att- you, know, you know he had photos with everybody who was anybody uh, with a prostitute, so he felt he could use that as ammunition.
4: He, he well not only that but he did um, when, when he was supposed to go to court he took those photographs of the judges that were working in that area and put those photographs in the in the court file so that whoever was going to act as judge to bring it up would see the the, the photographs and he says nobody is going to prosecute me they wouldn't dare embarrass each other and that and was true. There, they didn't.
2: Yeah, and it turned out that there there's no record of these being there. So somebody did just you know get rid of them, right?
4: Well, that's I was. That's what I was told that they were destroyed. But I also was told that all of those files are retained, but the public isn't allowed to see them. So I really don't know if if it still exists. But well, this
2: is you know you talk uh, you you inserted some words that I thought was very important of Thomas Paine where knowledge is a duty, ignorance is a crime, and if any man whose duty it is to know better has incurred such an expectation, he has either deceived himself or them. And I just believe, as you do believe, that people who are in positions of power and authority, they have a fiduciary uh, obligation to all of those that they serve, yet so many people, and especially in the last few years, We are uncovering just one scam after another, and is there a way out that you see? I mean, how are we going to get people into the elected power or into the judges' seats, or how can we have attorneys and board of directors and companies that we can believe in? I mean, is there hope for us?
4: Yes, but it's going to take some changes. And the changes that I see, for example, in the in the federal courts, once they're appointed, they stay there forever. Now, if we have a system where once they've been there for five years, they have to be submitted back to the public for reaffirmation. And if the public want to reaffirm them, then they're out. But if they are reaffirmed, then they stay in. and And in doing that we should be able to have a quick synopsis of every single lawsuit that they ruled on, the facts, listed the facts out simply, and the determining facts, and the law that's applied. And you can do that, of course, through through our computer technology and just print it out. And there are a lot of attorneys and there are a lot of other people who do watch that, and a lot of them are honest and straightforward, and they would like to have an honest and straightforward judiciary as well as the the administrative folks who have in other positions of authority. So if we could get a system like that where where the public and people who are out of office can quickly see what kind of rulings that they're making, you can see if they have uh, a set of facts that are identical in one lawsuit versus another, but the rulings are uh, contradictory in, in, in both of those lawsuits, then you know something is wrong. So you can catch him right away and say, let's go back and find out what's happening here.
2: That You know, Reginald, that just sounds like a very, very good checks and balances plan. It seems like what America was founded on, on trying to find the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. But in reality, are there people that are working towards that? Obviously, you are with your book, Judicial Deception. You're able to expose some of the scams and the scandals that are going on, but is this in place? Is there someone that's spearheading it?
4: Yes, there's another organization that uh, you know. I've never met the people. I do quote him in my books. So i the chairman of the organization. I've never met him, but they are working on it. And you can go to the to their website. It's called the Committee for the Rule of Law, and it's based in San Francisco. And that's a group of people who are struggling and fighting the court systems right now uh, to say that this, we should operate by the rule of law. All all rulings by the judges should be published. Right now, 85% of them are not published. They're hidden. And he said the the judges have to be uh, held accountable. And they have a nice group of people on there that are acting as board members and committee members. So there there is a group. Right now in San Francisco, that's doing its best uh, to to uh, take action. Now,
2: on, on are they getting any recriminations against them from these very people who obviously don't want the truth to come out? From perhaps judges or high-powered people with money or companies that have an agenda? Uh, is it a, is it a really? I would think it would be a very uphill struggle.
4: Well, it is a it is an uphill struggle, and the various judges and. And courts are, uh, keep giving, you know, they throw roadblocks in their way, and they refuse to let them proceed in some areas, but they come back and proceed anyway.
2: Well, that's and that's the way it needs to be. Sure. Is there a website that you have, or is there a website you want the listeners to go to? I know well, they can get your book. They can go to Amazon.com to get it, or they could get it at AuthorHouse.com.
4: Yes, or they could get it at Barnes & Noble. Or uh, uh,
2: any of the stores, like their favorite store. You could sure. go in and ask for Judicial Deception by right. Reginald L. Jensen. Right. But I really like the fact, Reginald, that there is a group out there that's fighting for this because I, when I read this book and I read your stories, I was very frightened because just as an ordinary citizen, I thought to myself, you know, I don't have time to go to the law library as you did for three hours every day. You don't want to get entangled in a court battle. And what you said is so true is that it's not the truth that prevails.
4: It, no, it isn't. No, it isn't. It's not the
2: truth, that's for no.
4: But I, I can tell you one thing, that if you, if you ever do go to court, you want to know whether or not your attorney is acting on your behalf. You have two guidelines, real simple ones. First of all, every lawsuit can be completed within a year. And if you can see that it isn't going to be completed within a year, you know something is wrong. And the other thing is that if the attorney asks for more money than he had asked for when you hired him, then you know something is wrong too because he's getting money someplace else and what he's trying to say is I've got another offer out here do you want to meet it so you, you, you have to you have to listen to what the attorney says you have to pay attention and you have to follow him to see if he's doing his work
2: well and that is such great advice and it you know the scary part is that I've heard people say who have been entangled in legal messes is that it isn't the nice guy that wins a lot of the time. It's the snake in the bush, and that <laughs> makes me very uh, very apprehensive. But I really thank you for writing this book. I think that you are making us aware of a real uh, crack in the sidewalk that needs to be fixed. So well, Reginald yeah, Jensen nice, is the so author, to to Judicial me. Deception is the book. Check it out at your local bookstore or online store. It is really worth reading. Reginald, thank you so much for gracing our airwaves and for fighting for justice. I mean, it is what our country is based on, and we all deserve it.
4: Cynthia, thanks a lot, and good luck to you.
2: Thank you, Reginald. It has been a pleasure. When we come back from break, we are going to switch gears, and we're going to find out what it's like to be told i don't love you anymore and i'm not sure i ever did we have author laura munson will be with us her first book out of 14 is this is not the story you think it is you're going to find some unlikely happiness i'm cynthia Bryan. this is star style be the star you are we'll be back in a bit don't go away
1: Listen. The world is talking. The world talk radio variety channel. Business bites. Here's Cynthia Bryan.
2: Do you know how to visualize? Have you ever wondered how so many successful sports stars have achieved their status. Many attest to the power of visualization. You can use it for anything. Mental imagery uses the unconscious mind to help you succeed in your endeavors. And here's how to tap into your own visualization method. Sit in a place where you can really relax, be quiet, and be contemplative. Breathe deeply. Use diaphragmatic breathing. Imagine your upcoming situation and see yourself being calm, confident, and energized. Walk yourself through the scenario, the meeting, the game plan, the negotiation, or whatever challenge you are facing. Rehearse a winning performance and visualize yourself succeeding in every way. Notice who's around you, including the sounds, the sights, the smells, and the environment, and practice repeatedly until you feel you've accomplished your goal. Now you're ready for the real event. Enjoy the proceedings. You are a winner. Remember, you're the star of your own performance. Turn your passions into profits. I'm Cynthia Bryan with another business bite from Star Style Productions. For professional coaching and consultations, call 925-377-STAR or visit star-style.com.
1: Cynthia Bryan is your guide on the side. www.cynthiabryan.com You can be the star you are. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel Where the world comes to listen and talk. That's 1-866-613-1612, or send an email to info at org. Now back to Star Style, Be The Star You Are, with the Oprah of the Airwaves, Cynthia Bryan. Be the star, you are.
2: We do welcome you back to the hottest topics on the airwaves. This is Star Style, Be The Star You Are, and I am your host and personal growth coach, Cynthia Bryan. Well, what would you do if your spouse of 20 years came to you one day and announced, I don't love you, never did, it's over? That's what author Laura Munson faced, and the result is her Blue Duesenberg of a book. This is not the story you think it is.
0: Welcome, Laura, to Star Style, Be the Star You Are. Hi, Cynthia. Thanks for having me. You
3: did it, girlfriend. (laughs) Finally, you have
0: a book published. Congratulations. You'll be famous. Oh, wow. Well, after (laughs) 14 novels, I never thought I'd be the main character in my first published book. Well,
2: you know, I really feel that when the time is right, it happens. But what? besides what we're going to talk about in your book, the story I think that you have foretold in writing this memoir, this is not the story you think it is, is that you persevered. You have a passion for writing. Writing is what you do. It encompasses you. You love it. And you stuck through it, you know, through thick and thin, even though you had zillions of rejections that probably could wallpaper your house. You knew you were a writer, but it turned out that what really needed to be published is a personal expose that you lived through as opposed to the
0: fiction you'd been writing for so many years. Right. Well, my author's statement is to write to provide relief for myself and other people. And this time it seemed appropriate for me to step out and be the main character if people were really going to be helped by something that I wrote so that they would know that there was a a real person out there who was trying to walk this walk of living in the moment through a crisis.
2: Well, you know, and we're going to talk about the relationship, but the reality is this book, this is not the story you think it is, the way that you handled it and not buying what your husband said to you and the way you decided to choose your freedom, to choose what you could control, to choose your happiness can be used in any situation or any challenge that we face in life because, you know, it's not what happens to us that matters. As we all know, life is cause and effect. It's how we respond to it. And although I'm sure it was it, it was a very difficult walk, you hung in there and the result was... The Marriage Was Saved. So let, let's talk about the book. You want to go away to Italy. First of all, had you been married 15 years, but you have been together about 20 years when it happened?
0: Yes, that's right.
2: Okay. So, and you had two lovely children. You thought you were happy. You, you decided to take a trip to Italy because Italy was your passion. You'd been there a junior in high school. I related so much to so many things in your book. I lived in France, my, I mean a junior in college. I lived in my year abroad in France and uh, in Bordeaux and felt similar to you.
0: Oh wow, and, it's so uh, life-changing. Uh,
2: so I understand. I understand and I am Italian and I go to Italy so I understand how that passion. But wh- before you went with the reluctance of your husband not wanting to join you and telling you to bring your daughter,
0: did you feel anything was
2: wrong at the po- at that point?
0: Well, I knew that he was miserable in his career, and I saw that it was um, becoming more and more of an issue around his personal happiness. And after so many years of my own career failure, I finally said, I'm going to go control what I can control and let go of trying to get published and do something that I've wanted, wanted to do for as many years as I'd wanted to be a published author, and that, that was to go back to Italy and um and then i came back and two days later i got a chance to practice <laughs> what i've been working on and that was all about surrender
2: but it had to have hit you in the solar plexus because w- one of the things is that so many people are defined by their jobs as de- as opposed to defined by their soul path and this is what was your husband he was feeling very depressed and alone And and blaming you mostly because of his own failures, and he wasn't finding his own happiness, and as we know, happiness is an
0: inside job. It's not outside of us. And I think we both knew better than to base our personal happiness on our career success, but I think we both did it anyway at Mm -hmm. different times in our lives. And I think especially in this economy, economy, so many relationships are being affected drastically by career loss and career failure. Well
2: that's why this book is really appropriate right now because the relationships are definitely suffering right now as people are losing their jobs, they're losing their homes, and with that they're losing their identity. I mean they're not, they don't have the money for the life that they used to have they the whole idea of feeling like a failure, that feeling like nothing matters, is very traumatic. It goes to your very core. So now that you live through it, you've survived it, your kids survived it, you, the whole time that you were going through this, the goal was to keep the family intact. And you would, you, when he would say, oh, the kids would want me to ha- be happy, but it can't be one person's happiness over the whole happiness of the children and the future and the family. How did you really keep your center? How did you practice surrendering and and hold your tongue so
0: often when you wanted to lash out? <laughs> well, I knew this man, and I believed in this man. And I think that so much of marriage is ebb and flow. And he had... He had held the ball for me after my Your big father publishing. had died. That's right, and then that happened simultaneously with a big publishing deal falling apart as well. And he had been there for me in that time. When we were married, one of the quotes that was read was by Rilke about being guardians of each other's solitude. Yes. And we, we never really bought into the happily ever after myth or the you complete me myth. It was always about two independent people coming together. So this wasn't as earth-shattering as one might think because... It wasn't like we believed in this mythic union that then defined us just like our jobs. It was No, I like
2: understand exactly what you're saying. I mean when my husband and I got married what well, the banner
0: that was on our the altar and part of our
2: vows is together we are three. You, me, we so that we always felt that we could maintain our individuality and that together we could bring something great to the union, but not at the expense of the individual. Right. And that seems the way that you and your husband had operated.
0: Right. So when he went through that time, it was a a time for me to really practice the walk that I had been trying to walk before in my career life, and that was to really focus on living in the present moment, which we hear about all the time, but to really apply it to your moment by moment, practical life, your mothering, uh, your cooking, your cleaning, your washing dishes, you know, that is such a powerful uh, way to live. And he gave me, I keep saying to people who ask, that I had the map and he gave me the territory.
2: Oh, that's that's a great analogy. But I also like the way you found beauty in just everyday things. Well, you would find beauty with the peaches and the apricots and the corn sitting on your countertop or going out into your lovely gardens and, you know, just inhaling the fragrance of it and making the simple meals and then giving him the space, helping him identify what was going to be his next choice. He'd always loved to, uh, she wanted to fly helicopters. Well, buying him helicopter lessons because he wasn't buying into your therapy thing.
0: He didn't want to go to therapy. Right. I just didn't want to engage the drama. So to me, it begged the question, okay, what can I create in this moment? And then what can I control? What can I own? And then what can I let go of? A question I know you've been asked a lot.
2: And when I've talked with people about the book, they always ask this question, well, easy to hang on when there's not a third party, when he hasn't run away with an 18-year-old or a 20-year-old, or there's you know, not a dolly on the slide. Well, you really never knew if there was or there wasn't. You just had to trust your gut instinct.
0: Right, and I had to... I was living with what was the truth as it was presented to me. And so my feeling of being committed to non-suffering meant that I needed to really focus on getting rid of those voices in my head. And you can bet I ask myself all those questions. What if there's another woman? What what's going on? Um, you know, am I being a pushover? What kind of a role model am I being to my kids? All of those questions. I think we all have that destructive voice that comes in and wants to engage in the drama and that's Well, it's a very tough question. And then towards the end of this,
2: his sister and who he adored, and her husband split up. The husband ran away with a 20-year-old, and she, her, she had a cancer
0: that came back that was life-threatening. This had to shake him to his core. This was a lot of how he healed through that time. He went down to um, live with her and help her, and um, he was able to really see what matters in life, and that's our relationships, namely that with ourselves. Yes.
2: Well, to me, what the crux of the book, and by the way, we're talking to author Laura Munson, who has written 14 other novels of fiction, which I'm sure are now going to be published, but this (laughs) is her first book. It's a memoir. This is not the story you think it is. And from the time she was a little girl, her daddy wanted her to be famous and knew she could be famous and encouraged her in everything. And just the near sticking to your guns and never giving up, You are achieving it, and you're getting him his blue Duesenberg. I love it. I love it. (laughs) You know, having a a daddy who believes in you, and you had two. Your adopted Italian daddy, and this one is really remarkable. But the the crux of the whole book is really about not buying into the suffering, going for the freedom, and going for what we control can control, as opposed to worrying what we can't, because. When there is things that we can't change, we can only change
0: who we are inside. Did I, do I have that correctly? Absolutely, and I want people to know that this book is true to its title. It really isn't the story you think it is in that um, it's not a strategy to stay married. It was actually quite the opposite. It was about, like you just said so eloquently, living in the moment and working with a philosophy about how to take care of yourself, especially during a crisis. Uh, and
2: what I, what I took away from uh, reading the book, and I read it in one sitting, and it's just, it really is excellent. I really felt it It just, you know, it had me gripped to the fact that we could apply this to anything, is that no matter what in life, if we choose to be a survivor, we are a survivor, and that there are no victims. We have to choose. We choose power. We choose to be a volunteer, or we choose to be a victim, and we do have the power and it's sometimes just in the approach, and so much is in what we, we don't say but we feel. And you believed in the relationship from the beginning, and you never gave up on that belief
0: despite what the actions were showing you. That's right. Being responsible for your own happiness in the moment is such a powerful way to live, mm. no matter I, what relationship you're in. And, and isn't it interesting that when I finally gave up, really surrendered, um, getting published, and my marriage—even those results, those outcomes—that's when all all of this abundance started happening. <laughs>
4: well,
2: it is that way, and I, I mean, I I'm a writer, as you. I, I followed your story so carefully because I felt, you know, as a writer, we have all these. We we get the editors who say, oh, just cut out 300 pages, rewrite 200 of them, <laughs> and we'll publish. And then you send it to them, and they reject you again. And it's like, how many of these rejections can I take anymore? It's so disheartening, so disheartening. Then when we finally just let go, and this happens in everything in life, and just say, okay, God, you take it away, or whatever you want to say, universe, you know, the sun, whatever, you just, just let it go, it happens. Because you were actually journaling or writing this memoir while you were going through this as a catharsis.
0: And then this becomes the book. That's right. I wrote it for myself, and then very quickly I realized that this was not a very common reaction in our very reactionary, disposable society. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to be true to my author's statement, I'm going to write this to the reader, and I'm really going to be willing to be vulnerable here, which is a character trait I prize. But I had rules. I wasn't going to expose things outside of what felt important to the story and the telling of it. And and my husband is, is proud of the book because... It's been his dream for 20 years to see me publish, too, and he doesn't feel like a villain in it, and uh, he hopes that our story will help people. It, I, I believe it will help people, and that is one of the hardest
2: things of being a writer is that we, the best way to write is to write what we know and to write what we live, even if we are creating fiction, is to use our relationships and our events and all of that and of course, some people, especially our family members, may feel that we're invading their privacy. So it's it, it's sort of a, we have to be very careful the way we we tap dance. But I feel that in this book, this is not the story you think it is, a season of unlikely happiness. You will touch the hearts of many, many people who are facing challenges, especially now in these tough economic times, and you did it brilliantly. Let's give out your website, Laura, so that people can find out more
0: about you. I think you have a terrific website. Well, thank you for everything. My website is L A U R A M U N S O N com, and then that will link you also to my blog, which um, has a lot of responses to the shorter version that came out in the New York Times. Um, where there's a great dialogue going on between people who are in crisis, whether it's a marriage crisis or just any kind of crisis. Have so I
2: hope you? That- you? I know you were always writing for magazines, etc. That particular article that you had in the uh, New York Times uh, has that
0: brought you more New York Times stories? No, it hasn't. But it sure has brought on an amazing amount of attention to my writing, which you know mm-hmm. I started my blog last year because I finally in the spirit of this book, actually, just said, to heck with it. I'm going to take this into my own control, and I'm going to just start posting stuff that I've written, fiction and personal essay. And on August 2nd, there were three clicks on my blog, and then after the New York Times piece came out, the next day there were 3,000. So the power uh, of the New York Times and the Internet is is, is huge. huge, it's huge. Well, go to lauramunsonauthor.com. You can read about her, read
2: about the book. Pick up a copy of the book, This Is Not the Story You Think It Is, A Season of Unlikely Happiness, and make sure your horseshoe is always pointing upward. (laughs) Laura, thank you so much. I hope that living in Montana is still as glorious as it has been for you since you moved there. Thank you, Cynthia. And keep riding your horses. That's the way I unwind
0: in my garden and with my horses. (laughs) There's nothing like it. Oh, I agree. Well, thanks for inspiring so many people.
2: Thank you. It's been del- a delight. This is not the story you think it is, Laura Munson. Thank you all for listening. This has been our hour of power. We want you to go out into the day and make sure to grab that star and hang on to it because you do have the power, and no matter what the disappointments or losses are. There is nothing that you can't achieve. Let go of the things that are beyond your control but react to the positive. Listen to the voice within you and know you have a choice. That is your greatness to persevere. Until we celebrate next week, I am Cynthia Bryan. This is Star Style. Be the star you are. You be the star you are. Smile, forgive, have fun, be wild and crazy. Thanks for joining me.
1: Thanks again for listening to Star Style, Be the Star You Are. For more information about Be the Star You Are Nonprofit Corporation, please visit BeTheStarUR.org. That's BeTheStarUR.org. Join Cynthia Bryan and Heather Brittany again next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, here on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Remember, to be a leader, you must be a reader. Enjoy a stellar week. You're a
4: seeker, a dreamer with courage to